Thank you, Sarah. Good morning. I'm glad you are not on youth retreat, but you are here for Sunday treat. Uh, We've been in a a series called What We Believe, and I think this is uh, sermon number 11. Uh, And if you were here last week, you got to experience one of the most downer sermons you will ever hear in the history of sermons. And that's because we had to deal with the fall and sin. And we stated at the front that our aim was that we would hate sin together. And so I trust that the Lord worked that out as we saw in His Word what sin does. In death and destruction, the curse of sin and death is deep and dark that you hate sin and you have grown in your hatred of sin. And the good news is that uh, we get to see God's plan today and how God is going to rectify the problem of the fall. As Joey uh, Taylor is so good at reminding me, uh, and I was very encouraged last Sunday when he came up, he's always fired up, Joey is never failed to be fired up and never fails to fire me up. He said, man, there is no good news without the bad news. And so, uh, and that's true. Uh, The good news is only good because the news that precedes it is awful. And so last week we heard the awful news of the fall. This week we get to hear the good news of God's plan. And that plan is the cross. So we're going to come... At Romans 3, 21 to 26, uh, a little uh, roundabout way, uh, we're going to ask two very important questions this morning. And uh, we'll get to Romans 3, 21 to 26, but, but we're going to ask some questions to get us there. To see God's plan of the cross and how God solves the problem of the fall and the curse of sin and death. And here are these two questions. Number one, what is the Lord going to do? What's he going to do with sin and death? And then, how is he going to do it? What's he going to do? Because sin and death is a real problem. What is he going to do? And then, how is he going to do it? So, we're going to look at three beautiful, three beautiful actions the Lord's going to take. And then we're going to see how he's going to pull it off in Romans 3, 21 to 26. So, What is he going to do? The first thing the Lord's going to do, we're going to look in Genesis 3.15. And the Lord, to solve the problem, the curse of sin and death, the Lord is going to crush the enemy. The Lord's going to crush the enemy. Genesis 3 introduces for us a mortal enemy. Introduces for us uh, the serpent, the accuser, the one who seeks to destroy, the one who stands at odds against the Lord, who stands at odds against us. And in Genesis 3.15, we learn that the Lord is not going to allow that accuser to stand. In fact, we learn in Genesis 3.15 that the Lord is going to crush the serpent. Genesis 3.15 often is called the first gospel. It is referred to by many in the world of theology as the first time the gospel is verbally proclaimed. And it is proclaimed by none other than God himself. And here's what Genesis 3.15 says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. 
and between your offspring and her offspring. You remember last week this passage also teaches us on the front end that this part of this bad news is there's enmity between the enemy, between spiritual forces and God's people. But what is the Lord going to do to rectify it? He's going to crush him. And here's what he says. He shall bruise your head. He's going to inflict wounds. But you, you shall bruise his heel. Right? And so the enemy's going to inflict wounds. But what's going to happen is the offspring of the woman is going to put a crushing blow down on top of the head of the enemy. The enemy will strike a blow. But the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of of the serpent. The offspring of the woman is going to crush his head and win back what was lost. And so there's this promise that Adam and Eve are going to give birth to someone who's going to win this battle. And as you read the narrative of your Bible, you see with each successive person who is birthed in this line, there is hope. You see that there is, there's this hope that this is going to be the one who's going to crush the serpent. The one who's going to set things right. And, and we get, man, we, we get, you know, you got Cain and Abel and, and this awful steep decline into the curse of sin and death. And then, then here comes Noah. And you think, just, just maybe, just maybe Noah's going to be the one to, to put an end to the curse of sin and death. And lo and behold, Noah doesn't put an end to the curse of sin and death. In fact, he kind of helps it along a little bit. And then, then there's Abraham. There's, there's this beautiful servant the Lord calls to, to be the father of many nations. And we think, man, Abraham, maybe, maybe Abraham's going to be the one who's going to be the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and receive the wounding of the serpent for us, but crush the head of the serpent and do away with the curse of sin and death. And Abraham has a promising start, but lo and behold, Abraham has some problems and he's not the solution. And maybe it's Isaac, right? Maybe Isaac, he's going to come from this line. Isaac's going to do the... No. Jacob, right? (laughs) One who grabs the heel, deceiver. No, his name doesn't even fit, right? And so, well, maybe, maybe it will be... Joseph, right? Well, no. He's rather impotent. And, and well, okay, maybe maybe Joshua. Joshua's going to be one, right? Joshua's going to do us a good job. No, not Joshua. Well, Saul? He doesn't last very long, right? He has a long kingdom, but he kind of ruins it a few days in. Maybe, maybe David. No, not David. Maybe Solomon. Uh, nope. Too many wives, right? Too many idols. Too many issues, right? Maybe one of the good kings of, of, of the line. Maybe Hezekiah. No, not Hezekiah. And they're left with these constant dead ends of hope. Who's going to be the one who comes from the line of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent? Because it's the promise of the Lord. He's definitely going to put a bruise on you. He's going to wound you. But there's going to be a crushing blow that will come from the descendant of the woman. Who will that be? Colossians 2, 13 to 15 tells us who it is. And it's none other than Jesus, who is the descendant of the woman through the line that he chose, who would deal the disarming blow and the crushing blow to the enemy. And here's how Paul states it in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Wow. That's a good action, isn't it? Now, how does he crush his head? This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, having triumphed over them in him. What's God going to do to rectify the problem of sin and death? Jesus is going to come and he's going to go to the cross and he is going to cancel the debt that is set against us and he's going to put Satan and these powers and these authorities to open shame and he's going to triumph over them in his cross. That's good news. That's real good news. So the Lord is going to crush the enemy and he's going to do it through the cross. What's the next thing? And by the way, your Bible's full of things the Lord does. I just picked three to try to limit it to 40 minutes, okay? So read and you'll find many things the Lord does to rectify sin and death. What's the second thing we're going to look at? The Lord is going to put His Word on the inside of us. You know, the problem with Adam and Eve was that they heard the Word of the Lord, but the desire to obey wasn't there because the temptation came and the temptation was prettier than God's Word and they bit on it and they bit into sin and death and the fall and the steep decline into the curse of sin and death. So what's the Lord going to do? He's going to take His Word and He's going to put His Word on the inside of us. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. So what's our tendency? Break the covenant. So the Lord said, I'm going to make a new one with you. Not like the one that you can break. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I want you to note there, this is not an optional thing. The Lord intends to take his people and write his word on their heart. And he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. There's no wishy-washy with the Lord's saving of his people. There's no like, nah. They're his people. He's their God. And they have his word. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So what's he going to do? He's going to make a new covenant. And he promises in this new agreement that he's going to make with his people that he's going to take his word and he's going to sit it down inside of their hearts. It's going to be inside of them. He promises that he will be our God. That he will wipe away the idols of the dark fallen system of the curse of sin and death and he will be our God and he will make us his people make it a guaranteed reality the lord promises that all of his people are going to know him not just the priests not just those on the professional inside but from the least to the greatest of his people they're all going to know him in other words in this room just make right now application of that in the people of god 
I don't have to say to you, know the Lord. Because if you're in Christ and you've got his word in you, guess what? You know him. And our discipleship isn't introducing you to him. You walk with him. It's teaching you how to walk more obediently. That's the promise, right? You will all know me. So what he does, he does away with a class system of knowledge. And he's going to give us the knowledge of himself. This is one of the great lies of Western sort of cultural Christianity is there's a class of people who know more. That's untrue. If you don't, can, can I be frank? If you don't know the Lord, He might not be on the inside of you. Because the promise in this new agreement He's going to make with us is He will be our God. We will be His people. He'll put His Word on the inside of us and we will all know Him. And if we don't know Him, it's not Him. It's not Him. Because one of the things He promises to do to rectify the problem of sin and death is put His Word in us. And He is going to make sure we know Him. There are no class systems of knowledge. One of the ways we ensure that is, is, is you have a Bible. One of the ways we ensure that is making sure you read your Bible and put it in front of you to read and teach you how to read it. Because you have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that should be welling up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I fear that sometimes our methodology of evangelism probably robs us of that because most of most of our evangelism feels a, a lot more like witchcraft than it does conversion through repentance and faith transformation by Jesus Christ in his gospel is not an issue of inviting Jesus into my heart it's repentance of sin and the rebellion and putting my faith in Jesus and then he gives me a new heart I don't need him to come into my heart. I need him to take out a dead heart and put in a live heart. I need an action to take place. And he promises in this new work that he will put his word in us. And there's no class system of knowledge. Because we have him and his word dwelling on the inside of us. Listen, this is crazy. It blows my mind. The problem, the problem with me, here's, here's the problem with me, is I've tasted too much of the rest of the world and Christians in the world and seeing believers with two pages of Philippians and they know enough to plant a thousand churches and they know enough to lead people to faith in Jesus with two pages of Philippians. We've got multiple translations on our shelves. And then we're looking for podcasts, for entertainment, for a preacher who preaches good or, or a band that sings good because we think somehow they're going to teach me more. And I'm saying, let's do something with two pages of Philippians because, because it's, it's not here, it's here. It's not here, it's not mental ability. It is a heart that has the Word of God in it through the supernatural work of Jesus Christ and His cross who crushed the head of the serpent and promises in this new deal through repentance and faith to put His Word in us. And we'll know Him. Isn't that awesome? So listen, you, you have all you need to know all you need to know. You don't need another Bible study. You don't need another discipleship class. You got all you need in the Holy Spirit dwelling here. And if you're one of those fortunate ones in the Western world, you even have multiple manuals in your language that you can read and make sense of. Isn't that great?
So rather than depending on somebody, tell me, tell me, tell me, he put his word inside of us. Which, by the way, can I just, I mean, this is in the notes, but the function of preaching is not to inform you. Preaching's function is not informative. Preaching's function is to announce, announce the Lord's word that is already here. And to bring to remembrance what is already here. Which is why even in the Bible, there's a distinction between preaching and teaching. Even different words. The, the preaching should have a, a, an urgent function to it. The word that's translated preach means there's an urgent message. and needs to have some oomph behind it. It needs to be urgent. It's a reminder. Don't forget what's here. Don't forget what's here. Well it up. Know it. Know it. Now let's act on it. Right? So the function of preaching is not to inform you. You have all you need. It is to remind you of what's already there. And to stir one another up to love and good works. Right? So I hope there's a stirring going on. I hope you're hearing. I have the word dwelling in me. I have the word in front of me. I know all I need to know. Right? Because that's one of the things he promises he's going to do. And then he says here, he promises to forgive our sins. And never bring it to memory again. Wow. Did you catch that? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Listen, when you remember your sin, it's not a function of the Lord. You know what his response is? What sin? That's the enemy. You want to know the difference between the enemy and the Holy Spirit? The enemy reminds you of your sin. The Holy Spirit goes, what sin? So that's the second thing the Lord's going to do. What's the third thing the Lord's going to do? Oh, wait. I missed something. Time out. Time out. I missed something. I was so... I got off. This is why I make notes. So I don't get off point in the rabbit trails. But I rabbit trailed and forgot a note. How did this happen? How does Jesus pull this off? Because in each of the points I've got in the New Testament where Jesus dealt with this. And where Paul teaches where Jesus deals with it. How did Jesus pull off this Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 to 34 promise of this new covenant? Jesus seals the covenant in himself. Luke 22, 19 to 20. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Why do we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? To remind us of this thing, this action that the Lord did. And making a new covenant with us in which he would put his word in us. Cause us to know him. He'd be our God. We'd be his people. And never remember our sin again. Jesus cut that deal with us on the cross. And every time we take the bread and we take the cup. We are to be reminded. That he is our God. We are his people. And my sin is not remembered. What's the third action the Lord's going to take to rectify the problem of the curse of sin and death? The Lord is going to gather us from all nations. He's going to make us clean. And He's going to put His Spirit on the inside of us. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 to 27. Listen to what the Lord says. I will take you from the nations. And gather you from all the countries. 
and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How's the Lord going to rectify the curse of sin and death? He is going to gather us. The Lord has a mission. And the mission just didn't roam Georgia. The mission is people from all nations. And by the way, one of the reasons the Lord sovereignly scattered his people among the nations was that there might be a witness born of who the Lord is so that when he called them, they would know his name. There's no mistake in how God treated Israel. So he's going to gather his people from all nations where they are scattered. And then he's going to wash them clean. He's going to clean them up. He's going to take care of their idolatry. And then he's going to give them a new heart. A cold, dead heart. This language of take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh is language that is intended to communicate to us that in sin and death we have a heart that doesn't feel him. We have a heart that doesn't care about Him. A heart that's not tuned to the frequency of the Lord. But He's going to take that dead heart out. and He's going to put in a heart that is tuned to His frequency. And is careful to know His way. And then He's going to give us a whole new spirit about us. He's going to transform us. And then, He's not going to leave obedience completely up to us. Did you catch that? I will put my spirit within you. So he's going to give us his Holy Spirit. And he's given us a heart that's tuned to his Holy Spirit. And then notice this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that in this new deal he's making with us, a new heart's tuned to the spirit who he gave us. And then that new heart's going to want to be careful to obey. Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. You know something fun about this passage? This is the passage Jesus preaches to Nicodemus in John 3. You ever wondered why Jesus said, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, they can't enter the kingdom of God? It's because Jesus was preaching from the passage he gave Ezekiel in chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And I will make you clean and clean you from all your idols. And I will take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. Nicodemus, unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom. What's Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you need my new work of the gospel to change your heart and give you the desire to obey. Jesus preached this passage to Nicodemus when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is Jesus going to do to rectify the problem of sin and death? He is going to cause us to be born fresh and new, with a new heart, his Holy Spirit in us, and us walk in his way. This is why beating sin is possible. If beating sin were left up to you and I, it would be impossible. But he did not leave it to you and I. He gave us a new heart, put his spirit in us, and he said, I will cause you to walk in my way. Which means there is a call for the Christian to persevere. 
Philippians 1.6, He who began this good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He will cause you to walk in obedience. Don't quit. That's what He's going to do. That's what He's going to do to beat the curse of sin and death. But the great question, and save this for last, is how is He going to pull those three things off? Because those are pretty good things, wouldn't you think? That's pretty good news. Last week was really downer. The curse of sin and death is real, and we hate sin. So what's he going to do? He's going to crush the enemy. He's going to put his word on the inside of us. And then he is going to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and give us his spirit to live on the inside of us. How is he going to pull that off? How is he going to do this? Well, that's where Romans 3, 21 to 26 comes in. And here's my summary of it, and then we'll walk through it. The Father, the Lord, the God of the Old Testament will sacrifice Jesus, the Son of God. And I want you to pay close attention. It is the Father sacrificing the Son. It is not the Roman Empire. It's not you and me. It is the Father putting the Son on the cross. The Father will sacrifice the Son in the place of guilty sinners... To satisfy His correct and righteous anger at sin. And to do justice in paying for sin. And then give righteousness to those who believe in Jesus by faith. Let's read what Paul has to say about this. Martin Luther rightly said about Romans 3, 21-26 that it is the very centerpiece of the entire Bible. Everything hangs and falls on Romans 3, 21 to 26. And listen to it. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So right out of the gate, There's a righteousness available and it is not had through the law. It's not had by being obedient enough. It is had from God by faith in Jesus Christ for anybody who will believe. Okay? So no one can say, I'm outside the reach of the grace of God. I'm too far gone. My sin's too deep. My action's too far gone. There's no too far gone for the cross. It is an arrogant thing to say God can't save me. He can reach down and save anyone. And it's available for anybody who will believe. Okay? Mm. So there is hope for the darkest corner of Rome, Georgia. Right? There is hope for the family who's had their child removed because they're terrible parents. It's not just the child, it's the mom and the dad, or the mom or the dad, or both, or aunt, or uncle, or whoever it happens to be. There is hope for the darkest corner. There is no distinction. The gospel is for anyone who will repent and believe. Therefore, just point of there's really no application today. We're going to get to something fun in a minute, but just point of application. If we really believe this good news and the things God wants to do, why do we not make it known to the dark corners? Why are we simply content to have a nice little thing where we invite people who smell like us and make the same amount of money of us and look like us can come? 
John, here's your quote. This is from John. I'm quoting. Fruit with no seed in it is not the Lord's. He said he would make us fruitful. And he would give us fruit that lasts. Fruit that lasts is fruit full of seed. Seed that when it falls into the ground, it sprouts and gives birth to new life. We have a seed-filled gospel and a dark soil in our county. And it needs to be filled with people scattering the fruit of the gospel on the ground of Floyd County. Not merely having more services for people to attend. Because this good news is powerful and it will wreck the curse of sin and death. It will absolutely obliterate sin and death. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Wow. Right? Sin and death have no shot against the good news. For there's no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why is there no distinction? Because there's nobody who hadn't sinned. We saw that last week. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Who put Jesus forward? God put Jesus forward. The Father put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. Fancy word that means to satisfy his anger at sin. God is rightfully angry at sin. It is only right that God be angry at sin. Sin and death has wrecked, created order. And Jesus intends to wreck sin and death. And he is angry at sin and death. So God the Father put Jesus the Son forward as a satisfaction of his anger by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, let's unpack it real quick. One, God has put his righteousness on display and has revealed it and he's done it in the cross of Jesus Christ. So when we look at the cross, when I survey the wondrous cross, right? When I survey, when I look at the glorious cross of Jesus, why did Paul say in Galatians 6, 14, when I boast, I boast in nothing except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we say that we boast in and that this execution tool is glorious? It is because on that cross, God put His righteousness available to us on display. Number two, the Lord's righteousness in the cross is clearly revealed as His eternal plan. In other words, the cross was plan A, it wasn't plan B. The grammar here is unmistakable. Listen to what he says. I've got to be nerdy for a moment if you don't mind. Because the grammar is important. The righteousness of God manifested apart from the law. The word manifested is, you ready? You ready? Nerd, nerd alert. It's the perfect passive. 
We don't have a perfect tense in English. In Greek, the perfect is a past action that's completed in eternity past with the results carrying on indefinitely in the future. Meaning the manifestation of the cross of Christ was the eternal plan of God before He ever said, Earth be. God intended to put on display His ability to rectify the worst situation imaginable. So that we would see Him in all of His splendor, not just a piece of it. But let that sit on your soul a little bit. This righteous display of God in the cross of Jesus is the eternal plan. Which is why Paul said, I'm boasting in nothing. I have nothing else to boast in. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I was among you, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why would Paul say that? It's because it's the eternal plan of God. It's, it's the thing. It's the thing. You want the thing? You want the silver bullet? You want the fix? It's Jesus and His cross. Three, God has made His righteousness available to unrighteous sinners through faith in Jesus. And He's done it for anybody who'll believe. So this righteousness is not unavailable. It's, it's available this morning. Right now. For anybody who'll believe. Why does God do this? Number four. Because all have sinned and under His right anger. Due to sin. Apart from Jesus. Apart from Christ. Human beings are under the righteous condemnation of God. However, number five. All who believe in Jesus are made righteous. If you believe in Jesus, He will make you right. As if you've met all the requirements of the law. Which is why one of the beautiful things He's going to do is remember our sin no more. It's because when we believe He gives us the righteousness of Christ... And counts us as though we've met every demand of the law. Wow. Number six. This gracious gift of grace is given through none other than Jesus. Through his redeeming work on the cross. Number seven. It was the Lord's plan all along to put Jesus. God in the flesh forward as the sacrifice for sin. To satisfy his right anger at sin. And it is to be received by faith alone. Break the sacrifice of innocent and perfect Jesus for guilty sinners was to put on display God as right for punishing sin that was committed in the past. And you notice the passage, it was passed over. Why didn't David get what David deserved? Because David believed by faith. And his hope was in the Lord. And God let David go scot-free. Why? Because the eternal plan is that Jesus would come and die for David's sin. Did you hear what the passage said? Because he had passed over former sins. He let the Israelites from Egypt go free. The book of Hebrews is going to make a big deal about the blood of bulls and goats that can't take away sin. The Lord let them go scot-free with the blood of a dirty sheep. Why? 
Because the Lamb of God that isn't dirty would go to the cross and pay for their sin. And He let them go free. So Jesus had to die in order to show God is just. Because God let them go free. And didn't punish them for their sin. And so who took the punishment? Jesus took their punishment. But it was also to show His righteousness, verse 26, at the present time. Right? Because there were people who need to believe then, and there are people who will need to believe tomorrow. So that the cross, right there in that moment, that bloody act, God put on display His righteousness to pay for past sin, present sin, and all future sin in Jesus. So that those who receive Him by faith get all of their sin wiped away and are counted as having the very righteousness of Jesus as though all the acts of the law had been obeyed by us. They're gone. Number nine, this powerful gospel shows that God is just for dealing with sin and not letting it go. And it shows that He's absolutely righteous in releasing sinners that He makes right because Jesus took our punishment for us. So that God's just, but He's also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Three of church, I don't know any other way to make the gospel any clearer than that. It, it, other than frail human lips and tongue and mind, there's nothing else I can do to make the good news clear to you. That's it. That's, that's your message. That is the foundation on which the church is constructed. The church of Jesus Christ is not constructed on good strategy, good plans, good budgets, and good work breakdown structures, and good organizational charts. The church of Jesus Christ sits squarely on the foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ, and it is powerful to wreck the curse of sin and death just is so what are we supposed to do with that truth today what are we supposed to do with that number one if you're in Christ this morning you need to worship you need to worship period no ifs ands or buts because uh, if you were listening you're a sinner But in Christ, through repentance and faith, He doesn't count you as that. And here's the cool thing. God does not wear rose-colored glasses. He is not pretending something is when it's not. He has given you the righteousness of Jesus and says, no sin. So if you're wrecked with guilt over your sin, you either haven't believed the gospel or you are a victim of the enemy. Because the gospel says your sin has been paid for. In full, set free, believe that. And I would argue that might be the base foundation off of which everybody in this room needs to do some work with the Lord today. Because the accuser of the brother stands before the Lord to accuse us day and night. So when you feel accused, it's not the Holy Spirit, it ain't Jesus, it ain't the Father, it's the enemy. So if you're in Christ this morning, there is no sin on your account, period. Glory to God. This is why sometimes I swear Jesus made me a charismatic and he put me in a Baptist church. 
made me a, I'm a proud Southern Baptist. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'll be dadgum. We are just stoic. But if we were in a charismatic church, the, the Hammond B3 would be going off and people would be singing and shouting, rolling down the aisle. And I, sometimes I think we, ought, we need to feel that way. That there needs to be a connection between the good news and this new heart that goes, I've been set free. You, you are my defender. You always say, you, you defend me. That's why I love that song, Defender. Right? Is, is he, and, and this is the beautiful, one of the beautiful byproducts of the gospel. We have, we're defended against the righteous wrath of God because there is no wrath on us because we have been set free from the guilt of sin. Dead gum. So if you're in Christ today, you need to worship. You need to worship. You need to practice worship today. Secondly, if you're not in Christ this morning, this gospel can and will wreck Sin and the curse of death in you. Repent and believe. Turn away from sin, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Romans 10. That's it. There's no mysterious formula. There's no magical prayer. Say, I'm done with sin and I want Jesus. And he will take out a cold dead heart and put in a new life heart and put his spirit in you. Write his word on your heart and put a new spirit within you and change you. And take away all the guilt forever. That's simple. It's not more complex than that. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning, that's the first time you heard that message. I was 20 years old before I heard that in this town. And maybe for you, your Christianity is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Be good enough, be smart enough, avoid sin enough, go to the right church, listen to the right podcast, listen to the right music, attach myself to the right people, and maybe when I get to the end of days, it'll be enough to satisfy God. That is not the gospel. It's not the good news. Not the good news. As best I understand it, you've heard the gospel this morning. And so if you're not in Christ, turn to Jesus. And one of two things. Tell somebody this morning. Turn around and say, I think I just got saved. Listen, let me tell you what happened to me. I was in a youth meeting as a youth leader, as a lost person. And I was sitting in a room where somebody did Romans 3, 21 to 26. As I sat in my chair, believing that I was good enough for God to take to heaven, I literally, on the inside, got hot. This was my experience. It may not be yours. This was my experience. I got hot on the inside. And I felt like I was going to burn up. And all of a sudden, all of my intentions shifted and changed. And I, something happened. Something clicked. And it made sense. And I went, I think I just met Jesus. And they gave this invitation. And I went and found my leader, who I was supposed to be a leader under that leader, taking care of students. And I said, I think I just got saved. I don't know what just happened. And lo and behold, I met Jesus in that moment. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kidding when I say we can walk into a room like this and, and have been around Christians all our life and never heard that message. And so maybe this morning, this is the first time you've heard the gospel. And maybe Jesus just wrecked the curse of sin and death in you. And if that's the case, tell somebody. I had to go tell somebody. I was like, something just happened to me. And I, mm, yes, yes. And I haven't been the same since.
I'm in the same sense. And maybe that just happened to you, so tell somebody. And if you don't feel comfortable telling somebody around you, some of the pastors will be standing in the back. Come tell us. And uh, yeah, you're good. There's no magic to it. You're in the faith, child of the king, right? So two things. Worship. If you heard the gospel and need to repent and believe, want to do that. Here's how we're going to prepare for worship. Man, you go ahead and start coming up. Psalm 92, 1 to 4. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Father, we ask that you help us to do that this morning. Whether it be a renewed sense of thanksgiving because of this good news of the gospel and the reminder and being stirred up in our souls to love and to love you and to recognize how much you actually love us and care for us. I pray that you would pull off this psalm this morning, that we would sing to you to the music that is played, and we would sing out of joy and thanksgiving because of what you've done for us on the cross. And then, Lord, I ask that you would bring thanksgiving from lips that are fresh and new this morning that, because they believe the gospel. They believe the good news. And you've wrecked the curse of sin and death in them. And there's a fresh and new something going on. Lord, I pray that you would even now in this moment give confidence to that person perhaps that's believed for the first time. It's real. Lord, I pray that you would stir them to sing and give thanks. Lord, I ask that you would not let us be happy to just come and sit in a room one day a week, but you would make us fruit filled with the seed of the gospel to be spilled all across our our city, to land on the dirt of Roman Floyd County and produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Make us disciple makers. And we're not content to hold this gospel in, but to release it on our city. You wreck the curse of sin and death in Roman Floyd County with the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And Lord, start with us. Let it begin here. Let it begin here. Lord, we pray that you would overcome barriers. Even now, the accuser of the brothers is accusing and giving excuses And I pray that you would not let that happen. That you would win that in the heavenlies, even now. And bring forth thanksgiving and transformation in this room and in our city. We pray in Jesus' name.